You know, I left India in 1967 to come to Boston to begin my graduate studies. It happened to coincide with the time of some of the greatest uh, athletes and sports figures that came on the scene. Uh, I have had the privilege in these 50 years I've been living in this part of the world to see the all-time greats in hockey, Bobby Orr, Wayne Gersky, you might have another name in there. Uh, in basketball, I got to see Wilt the Still Chamberlain, Michael Jordan, Stephen Curry, and now LeBron James. Again, you might have some names that are outside of those four. In, uh, in the world of uh, NFL football, I got to see Steve Montana and Tom Brady, probably the greatest of all time. In golf, I got to see both Jack Nicklaus and Tiger Woods play. And the list goes on. Probably baseball is the only one where I've not seen the greatest of all times. Now, your names might be somewhat different than mine if I said who were the greatest. But here's another one that's closer to home. Who would you say was the greatest Canadian of all time? Well, you don't have to guess. In 2004, I forget which newspaper or magazine it was that actually ran a national survey. And after months of voting, they narrowed it down to about 10 people. And then two more months of uh, advocates uh, rooting for their own particular choice. And they finally settled on NDP leader Tommy Douglas. And the reason that he was the founder of uh, Medicare, the Canadian health system. Now, if we... Stretch that question even further to say, who was the greatest of all time, greatest human being of all time? Now, none of us would know the answer because none of us know all human beings that have ever lived. But Jesus did, because in Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, he said, of all people who have been born of a woman, meaning everyone, there is none greater than John the Baptist. <laughs> so according to Jesus, John the Baptist would qualify as the greatest human being that there ever was. Now, you might say, Sundar, these are all interesting questions, and we could debate some of those things, uh, except perhaps what Jesus said. But what's the point? We're not going to become hockey players like a Bobby Orr or tennis players like a Roger Federer and even mention him or Djokovic. But here's the surprising thing. When it comes to the greatest human being of all, the things that made him great, interestingly enough, are accessible to every single one of us and in fact, are possible and a part of God's plan for each one of us. And as we continue this series on identity and looking at characters in the scriptures, I want to look at this man, John the Baptist. Now, I want three words to build the bridge from John the Baptist to you and me today. We, we begin with John chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. We read these words. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, listen, if somebody were to ask me who I am, I'd probably respond and could in many one of several ways. I, I am an engineer by profession. I am a husband. I'm a grandfather of six grandchildren. I have been a pastor of a church for 37 years. I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. Oh, uh, maybe the wrong place to say that with spring training starting today with a game with the Toronto Blue Jays, I think. I am a jazz musician. I'm an amateur photographer. And I could go on with lots of I am's. And so would you. If you were asked who are you, you'd probably begin with I am and fill in the blanks in ways that are appropriate. It's, I think it's a safe bet that none of us, certainly I know not me, will ever begin to answer a question, who are you, by saying, I am not. 
Uh, I'm not likely to say I am not a, a plumber. I am not a handyman. I'm not a politician. Yet it was interesting that that's how John the Baptist responded. When they asked him, who are you? I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. By the way, I googled knowing who you are not. And do you know, I didn't get a single hit on that. Instead, I got hit after hit after hit of the importance of knowing who you are. So everybody thinks in terms of who I am in answer to the question, not who I am not. But for John the Baptist, it would seem that knowing who he was not preceded who he was. <laughs> now, of course, the people who are questioning him get utterly frustrated, and these people do. And so they go on to say in verses 22 and 23, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Come on, John. Don't keep on telling us who you're not. You need to tell us who you are. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. After saying who he was not, he said, this is my identity. I am a voice crying in the wilderness. It's not the greatest identity builder, let's face it. You know what a voice in the wilderness is like? I've tried sometimes when I'm in, in, in a huge, huge expansive space. And I shout. And the wilderness or the desert has the vastness that simply swallows up all your words. There's not even an echo coming back anywhere and it just disappears. So much energy gone in no time at all. A voice in the wilderness seems weak and easily swallowed up, lost in vastness with no significance. And yet it's interesting that Mark's gospel says, the beginning of the gospel was a voice crying in the wilderness. So actually a quotation from the prophet Isaiah. And it was a metaphor for a preacher who was galvanized to speak hope and meaning to a people from whom all hope had gone. Same thing is true for you and me. When we asked, who are you? An identity question. It's very important for us to know who we are not. Because first of all, it helps us to say no to many, many things that keep us from functioning the way God intended us to function. Excuse me for being a little bit personal here. It may sound like boasting, but that's not what I'm talking about. On two or three occasions, I've been approached to let my name stand to be the senior leader of certain organizations. On one occasion, it was a, a, a bio college somewhere. But it only took me a few minutes of asking what my primary job responsibilities would be. And they said 50% of your time will be spent raising money. I didn't need to pray to say, no, I am not a fundraiser. It was very helpful. They even said to me, don't you need to pray about it? No, I don't need to pray about it. I am not a fundraiser. On another occasion, I was asked to consider letting my name stand to be the president of a particular organization. <laughs> and a very good friend of mine said, no, Sundar, you don't need to do that. I said, why? He said, you're not a fighter. He said, this place needs a fighter. Again, knowing who I wasn't was so easy and so helpful. It helped me to say no to a lot of things. My brother, he's nine years younger than I am. And growing up in New Delhi, India, he went to the same school that I did. And in India, teachers stayed in schools for a long, long time. And so he had all the same teachers that I had. And in every class, they would 
lose no time to remind him, oh, your brother Sundar was in our class, uh, meaning we're going to expect you to be like him. And my brother said, look, I am not my brother. You're not going to expect those things from me. You might as well get used to the fact that if 67% is enough to pass, that's all I'm planning to get, not 68%. He knew who he wasn't, and so that helped him. By contrast, I had a first cousin whose father and whose uncle were engineers, like I was, uh, studying to be an engineer as well. And so he automatically assumed or picked up by osmosis that that's what he was going to study. And so he came to university with me. He was only six months younger than I am. And he struggled and struggled and struggled his way through the five-year engineering program. He failed a couple of courses, had to make up courses in the summertime and kind of graduated with a limp, slow to speak. But right after that, he went to the Indian Institute of Management and his career just took off. And when he retired, he was a senior vice president of a large multinational conglomerate and is today known and sought after as a mentor. If he had known who he wasn't, I am not an engineer, who knows what he could have done with those years. It is so important for us to know who we are not. But like John the Baptist, when it comes to the question, who am I? Again, there are many variations, as many variations there are people. But you and I still are voices in the wilderness first and foremost. We are witnesses who point to Jesus in the wilderness of people's lives. And these COVID-19 days are days where all kinds of wilderness experiences are common all around us. And that doesn't mean we all call to be preachers. Like one of my primary expression of that identity as a voice crying in the wilderness into people's lives is primarily proclamation and secondarily uh, through my teaching in a mentoring context. But that's not everybody's calling. What is common to all of us is that through the gift of presence, prayer, and blessing, our words and our presence can truly be voices that function in the wilderness of people's lives. And in Isaiah chapter 40, the context in which this first happened, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the verses go on to say, Prepare the way of the Lord. Build a highway in the wilderness along which the king of glory will come and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. What a powerful metaphor for what voices in the wilderness do, whether through preaching or mentoring or some of these other things I'm talking about. We're building a highway along which Jesus travels and comes into the wilderness of people's lives. I said we're called to be that through the gift of presence, prayer, and blessing. When I retired four years ago, a year before that, approximately five years, we, after living for 37 years in the parsonage right on Islington Avenue, having no neighbors, the church is duplex on one side, the church on the other side, and a huge parking lot behind us, and Islington Avenue in front of us, which might as well have been a highway as far as getting to know neighbors on the other side is concerned. We grew up with our neighbors for 36 years. And then in 2015, October, we moved to the home where we are living right now, back into a neighborhood. And this has been the most amazing five years of our life where we have begun to realize the sheer power and gift of presence, just being present in people's lives, building relationships with them, just finding out where they're at. And do you know, as far as we know, none of them are any regular churchgoers. None of them are probably followers of Jesus. But not one of them has ever said no when on a particular occasion we have said, hey, can we pray with you? Can we pray for you? 
the couple that are immediately to the left of us, they had a, a, their firstborn child had been born with some significant mental challenges and was very, very delayed in her development, often having to be rushed to sick kids' hospital at various times. Many an opportunity for us to pray for help, to pray for the parents. And, and even though they moved away from the neighborhood, they are still with us. On one occasion when they were facing a very difficult three days in the hospital uh, with some tests for this little child, in the middle of the night, the Lord uh, gave me an idea of just writing a blessing to them. It was around Christmas time, so I just blessed them in the name of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace, and tied that blessing to the experience that they were having with their little child. He wrote back the next day and said, my children had the most peaceful night that they've ever had, and it's all because of your blessing. Nothing special about me. The gift of presence to find out where they are, the gift of prayers, and Nobody has so far ever resisted prayer. A young couple moved into the right of us and we discovered that uh, though they'd been going together for four years, they'd been married for just one year. And I saw them all dressed up one evening. I said, hey, where are you going? We're going to celebrate our one-year anniversary. Can I come and pray with you? Sure. And right there on the street, I was able to pray with them and ask for God's blessing. And there were tears running down this person's eyes. Through the gift of presence, prayer, and blessing, we can be voices in the wilderness of people's lives. Well, that's the first bridge from John the Baptist's life to ours. Know who I am not so I can focus on who I am and whatever the details of who I am are, the common element for all of us is that we are called to be those voices in the wilderness of people's lives through the gift of presence and prayer and blessing building a highway, as it were, along which Jesus, the King of glory, can travel and come into their presence and satisfy their needs. Well, a couple of chapters later, we see another dialogue. This time, it isn't the Pharisees and the others, but his own disciples who come to him. John chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. In other words, you're losing the crowds, John. All these people that were hanging around you, listening to your thunderous voice, proclaiming the first prophetic voice that broke 400 years of silence in, 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 in Judah. They're all leaving you, John. They're all leaving you. You better do something, maybe was the implication. You know what John says? A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. John didn't own the crowds. He had no sense of ownership of the crowds. No, no, no. They were given to him from heaven to manage. He understood what it means to be a steward. And that's my second word. If identity is the first word that builds the bridge between John the Baptist and me, stewardship is the second one. Stewards in those days owned nothing. P people who had large, large estates hired people as managers of that estate. That's who a steward was. It's not primarily what we think of when you think of an airline steward or stewardess. They had power to hire and fire workers. They had power and access to the master's money to spend it with one important requirement. Any moment the master could come and say, I want to see the books. And so it is required of stewards, number one, more than anything else, not to be spectacular, but to be faithful. And because John didn't own the crowds when John lost them, nothing changed in his life. 
he learned well from his master jesus who kept driving people away who wanted to come jesus didn't seem to be interested in building big big crowds and people came he said let the dead bury their dead you go and come the son of man doesn't have a place to lie down to call his own can you drink the cup that i drink from he wasn't making it easy for the crowds although the crowds kept flocking to him he made it quite hard for them and some of them often left because they couldn't understand what he was saying or didn't like what he was saying and so john when he lost his crowd to jesus he lost nothing because they were never his to possess in the first place os guinness a writer who has helped me a lot talks about the culture that we live in today where we have a society where our, where we are developing leadership that are codependent on followership he told the story of sitting across a breakfast table from a pastor of a large mega church in in the states and he said this man confessed to him in a moment of rare honesty he said us every sunday morning when i stand up to preach i am afraid because i know i am only one or two bad sermons away from losing these people to the church down the street and so he was sweating to keep the crowds <laughs> john the baptist would have said hey a man can only receive what is given him from over you know you don't own the crowds you just look after them for jesus and if they go some place else that's somebody else's responsibility one of this has helped me a lot again personally because during the 36 years that i was pastor at rexdale the attendance was about 600 or so when we started for the first 16 years that i was there learning to preach doing my best preaching in those days we had morning and evening services two sermons every week and from the feedback i got from the elders and others doing well we went from 600 to 716 years not exactly spectacular growth then from 1996 to 2000 we went from 700 to 1100 and then from 2000 till 2016 when i retired it just not dropped from more 11 or 1400 back down to 7 or 800 not exactly the most spectacular growth curve and i remember one young man from our congregation a gifted man who went on to seminary and is now serving as an international worker again in, in a moment of rare honesty and openness i shouldn't say rare sorry he and i had a good relationship he just said pastor christian can i ask you a question he said how come there's been such so poor growth are we not emphasizing evangelism well i i shared with him from my perspective a john the baptist perspective on stewardship that I said I don't know the answer to that question all I know is I think I think I can say to Jesus I've been faithful in my call I shared about some experiences in my own church's life where I saw vitality Sunday after Sunday I said and I and I'd rather have that vitality instead of just novelty or size were they excuses I don't know maybe they were maybe they weren't I'll never know the answer to that all I know is understanding John the Baptist mentality that the crowds whether they are there were never mine to own certainly helped a lot i was helped in this perspective when it came to preaching some sermons that i knew wouldn't be popular 
Isaiah knew that long, long before John the Baptist, when John the Baptist was a voice crying in the wilderness, Isaiah of chapter 40 was what informed this man. So he had a link to Isaiah deep down within. And Isaiah chapter 30 once, because he was preaching to Judah, who because of their uh, persevering in resisting the warnings, continuing their practices of idolatry and the violation of the sins of social justice, were heading straight for exile. And Isaiah was warning them about the holiness of God. And at one point in Isaiah chapter 30, this is what the people come and say to him. They say to the prophets, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the past. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Can you imagine Can you imagine a people coming to a pastor or a preacher and say, look, can you just preach stuff to us that goes down easy? Uh, we actually know those are lies. We actually know they're not even true. But so long as it goes down easy and smooth, prophesy illusions to us, if you will. But don't confront us with the Holy One of Israel. We can't handle that kind of preaching anymore. Isaiah kept preaching and kept losing the crowds. He also had a keen sense. Now, this is not to say we cavalierly lose people by our own bad manners, sloppy work, rudeness, irresponsibility. We're not talking about that kind of stuff. We're talking about what are the inevitable consequences sometimes of losing people because you've been obedient to what God says. Eugene Peterson talks about this. He said, the temptation for the preacher, therefore, in these days is to set aside the holy for something much more understandable and accessible who will serve people on their own terms, not a God whom they will serve on his terms. It will certainly make the preacher more popular. And then he this warning. But if we take the God ideas and the God images of our culture and use them to appeal to people's self-interest in getting a God who would serve them, he would no longer be holy. And if you, the preacher, compromise in the slightest bit, you will be betraying me, says God. Oh, those were the kind of things that reinforced the second element of John's life, which is the sense of stewardship. John continues back again to John chapter one. After saying, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. A man can only receive what is given from above. He also says this in verse one, chapter one, verses 29 and 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase. Now, there's a sense in which Jesus can't increase or decrease. He is who he is, unchangeably so. If every single Christian ever alive today stopped singing any more songs of praise and glory to God, he would still remain unchangeably God. We wouldn't diminish his glory one bit. On the other hand, if there was a huge outpouring of global worship and praise like never before, it wouldn't increase his glory one bit. Because he's unchangingly glorious, he cannot increase and he cannot decrease. What does John mean then when he says Jesus must increase? What he meant was my, he must increase in my estimation. My appreciation of his greatness will have to increase, not he in himself. And this was Jesus' preoccupation to think of his final prayer. Now, if you really want to know what is important to people, 
it's useful to know what they're thinking about when they're about to die. Especially what kind of things they are praying about. One of the wisest questions I got during the early, early part of this COVID season was a wise woman who said to me, Sundar, how are you praying these days? She knew what was the quickest way to get to what was important in my life at that moment. Because when times are difficult and we are being tested, the things we pray about are the things that are most important to us at that time. And if you combine that with the time when you're about to die, you can see absolutely, certainly. So what was on Jesus' mind? In the shadow of the cross, what was he praying about? What was the real Lord's prayer, if you will? Or, or the second Lord's prayer? John chapter 17, Jesus' final prayer. We call it the high priestly prayer. But you know what is the preoccupation, Jesus' preoccupation with that prayer? He begins by saying, Father, glorify me. The time has come, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. I want everyone here who believes in me. And of course, Jesus prayed that prayer for everyone who believed through the witness of the apostle. It means every Christian who's ever lived. Jesus said, Father, I want them to be with me so they can see my glory. So Jesus' preoccupation at the foot of the cross, the prayers that were occupying his heart when he knew his time on earth was over was glorify me and I want everybody around to see my glory. Now, you know what? That, that makes him sound unbelievably egotistic, right? Because if any human being did that, we would find that utterly repulsive. Praise me, praise me. You're all here to make me feel good. Do you know why you're all listening to this sermon? So you're going to praise me. My goodness, I can't even say that as a joke. It's so offensive. And yet we know there are people like that. Bosses at work. Leaders in churches, unfortunately. Politicians of various stripes. Everyone seeking their own glory. And we are repelled by that. And here, yet here is Jesus and God who commands us to worship him. What's the difference between him and us? Especially when you think that Jesus warned us about it. In fact, he told the disciples, if you're seeking glory from human beings, you're not going to be able to believe in me. If you're seeking glory from human beings, you're not even going to confess who I am. It diminishes their ability to believe. Because you see, when you and I want somebody to praise us, when you and I want to be worshipped in that way, it's because of some deficit within us. It makes us feel better when people worship us or praise us. It diminishes us when they don't give us the credit that we think we need. But again, God is unchangeable. We cannot diminish his glory. We cannot exalt his glory. Therefore, when God asks us to praise him, it cannot be for his benefit. It is for your benefit and for my benefit. Something happens to us when we worship and when we pray. By ascribing glory to him, we get purpose, significance, and joy. Remember the first miracle that Jesus did? By the way, John's gospel is structured around seven miracles that are called seven signs. A sign was John's way of saying, through this, Jesus reveals to us who he is and what he came to do. And what was the very first sign that Jesus did? In fact, John chapter 2 tells us this was the first sign that Jesus did. It was a sign of turning water into wine, right? So the very first miracle, the very first sign that tells us who Jesus is and what he came for was when he took a party that was running out of joy because the wine was all gone, an embarrassed party planner was going to look really, really bad to the people who hired him. And he takes 150 gallons of water and turns them into the best wine so the party can continue. This was the first sign? What does this say? 
Jesus came to give us joy when the joy had run out. Jesus is the ultimate joy giver and that is his glory because that John ends that section by saying this was the first Jesus sign that he did to reveal his glory to people. God is glorified as the joy giver. That is why ultimately our joy and his glory are inseparably tied up. The pursuit of his glory is the same as the pursuit of our joy. And we see this, we get a clue to this in the way we react to grandeur. I mean, why are we fascinated with big things? Massive mountains, the Rockies, the Himalayas. Deep gorges. The Grand Canyon. I remember once in Page, Arizona, I always keep forgetting the name of that lake. It it looks like an oxbow. The Colorado River has just run an almost complete circular groove around it in Page. And it's 1,760 foot deep chasm. And I'm not a risk taker. I'm a risk averse individual by personality. Yet do you know what I did? I put the biggest wide angle lens I could on my camera. I found a spot on the edge where the land was sloping away from the edge so there was no risk of me falling. And I hung on the edge and dangled my camera over the edge. Anyone who would know me would say, Sundar would never do anything like that. Why? Because there was grandeur that was so magnificent that I had to capture it with the widest angle lens and love to tell everybody else about it. It was glory that demanded it and I was exhilarated by that process. I would do it all over again. Those are the kings that give us a hint that our pursuit of his joy, glory is the same as the pursuit of our joy. That's why show me your glory is the most foundational prayer that we can pray. He must increase. Now, concomitant with that, congruent with that, or the corollary to that is, I must decrease. <laughs> what is that? Th- that's not uh, being like Uriah Heep in Charles Dickens' novel. It's not deprecating yourself. It's not, in, it's not pretending that you are not. If someone comes and says to me, as, as they did many times on the Sunday morning when I would preach, hey, Pastor Sun, that was a great sermon. It's not humility. It's not decreasing yourself to say, ah, not really. That would be stupidity. God gave me a gift. I need to honor that. What what does John mean when he says, I must decrease? It's the lifelong pursuit of humility. They both grow together. The pursuit of his glory, he must increase, goes hand in hand with I must decrease. I forget who it was who said, it is very difficult at the same time to convey that God is great and you are clever. If he's great, I'm not. It's a pursuit of humility. It's knowing who I am in the presence of God. Knowing that everything that I have is a gift from heaven. And one of the most amazing demonstrations of this is the the life of the Apostle Paul. About 14 years into his ministry, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 6, he writes these words. Because he had met the three big shots in Jerusalem. As for those who seem to be important, Peter, James, and John, Whatever they were makes no difference to me. Kind of sounds a little bit on the arrogant side. Peter, James, and John, who they were, important guys, pillars in the church, ah, no big deal. I was called by Jesus. I had a personal encounter with him. He didn't say those words, but it was implicit because his actual words were, as for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. Peter, James, and John, who cares? That was 14 years approximately. Six years later, 20 years into the ministry, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles. No, it does matter who they are. They're all better than I am. I'm the least of the apostles. 
Five more years later in chapter 3, verse 8 of Ephesians, I am less than the least of all God's people. First, it was Peter, James, and John. Who are they? I don't really care. Five years later, I'm the least of the apostles. Five more years later, I am less than the least of all the people. And then 30 years into his ministry, 1 Timothy 1.15, I'm the worst of all sinners. So even as he was in reality becoming more and more powerful, more and more godly, more and more filled with the Holy Spirit of God, more and more intoxicated by the glory and the beauty of Jesus, more and more ready to dry and, and have his whole life poured out as a drink offering, consumed by the glory and majesty of Jesus, there's a downward mobility of his own assessment of himself. That's what John was talking about. He must increase and I must decrease. This is why in the scriptures so many times we see a reinforcement of the useless, the powerlessness of the flesh. The arm of the flesh is said is powerful. He said whoever trusts in his own flesh, in his or her own abilities is like tumbleweed. Tumbleweed is the kind of stuff if you've seen anywhere in the Arizona desert or anywhere, it just gets like a huge big ball, massive in size, but it just rolls in the slightest of wind, takes it off because it is rootless, fruitless, weightless, and therefore useless. Those who trust in their own abilities are like tumbleweed, he says. But those who trust in the Lord are like trees planted by rivers of water, deeply rooted, bearing fruit in its season. Read through the scriptures sometime and you'll find how often the, the, the powerlessness of the flesh is celebrated. That's why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. So how do we pull this off? This life of identity, knowing whom I'm not, knowing that I'm a voice in the wilderness, penetrating the chaos of people's lives by the gift of presence, prayer, and blessing. A life of stewardship where I own nothing and hold what God has given me loosely. And a life of pursuing his glory and my own humility. How do we pull this off? <laughs> what was John's secret? In Luke chapter 1 verse 80, it was the story of the birth of John the Baptist. It says, after his father had blessed him, it said that John grew up in the desert and he became mighty in the wilderness or in the desert. And then in Luke chapter 3 verse 1, he says, in the days of uh, Herod, in the days of Pontius Pilate, in the days of this person and that person, all this great person, in the days when Annas and Caiaphas was this, that, the other, the word of the Lord came to John in the desert. A man who was growing mighty in the wilderness suddenly heard a voice in the wilderness, making him a voice in the wilderness of people's lives. It was the voice that called him that enabled him to become a voice in the desert of other people's lives. So we pull it off by letting that voice speak to us. Wildernesses can be hard places. Wildernesses can be dry places. Wildernesses can be lonely places. But they have one huge advantage. Wildernesses are quiet and free from distractions. And we can hear that voice. And it can reaffirm who we are. It can recalibrate our soul. Because just knowing these three things, you don't settle them once and for all. Regularly, the world is trying to push us in other directions. No, you're not that. You're this, you're this, you're this. You need to make something of yourself. It's not good enough to be a voice in the wilderness. You, you, you need bigness. You need greatness. You need recognition. It's not enough just to be a steward. And humble, you, you got to assert yourself, man. That's the kind of world we live in. There's, we're being hammered by this all around us. And so uh, we can drift, and so we need a regular recalibration. 
And for me, it comes by hearing that voice in the word of God in the desert. I close with this story. It was April of 2017. I got on a plane flying to England because I was scheduled to speak two four-hour sessions at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics. 25 or 30 of the most brilliant young men and women culled from hundreds of applicants all over the world. And I was to teach them four hours of spiritual disciplines and four hours on preaching. And I was feeling this massive sense of unworthiness. Lord, these people are students. They already have their master's degree. Some of them are working on their PhDs. They're all students in philosophy and history, subjects that I know nothing about. And I'm going to be teaching them. And I felt struggling, anxious about needing to perform properly, not letting down the people who are counting on me. What kind of a report are they going to send about me? Anyway, got into the plane and I took out my Bible and was in my Bible reading for that particular day. And guess where I was? John chapter 1. Who are you, John? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. And God said to me, of course you're not a philosopher. Of course you're not a PhD qualified individual. Of course you do not have the brilliance required to speak to these people. That's what you are not. But who are you? You are a voice crying in the wilderness. And that is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus. And when you go preach, that's what I've asked you to do. When you go preach and teach them, you have what I have given you, not what I have not given you. You will be building a highway into the wildernesses of those young people's lives that you're speaking to, and you are preparing the way for Jesus to come along and accomplish his work in them. <laughs> I closed my Bible, thank God, and went into a time of sleep and did eight hours of preaching and teaching without any more anxiety at all. So John the Baptist, <laughs> greatest human being who ever lived, I'm called to live like that, and you too. 